there's this strange space here in the seating. It's, it's throwing me off. I'm used to everybody being spread out more, but there's like a, I don't know if there's something wrong with these seats or something wrong with you, Daniel. I don't know. <laughs> As most of you know, we have been studying through uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We've been doing that for over a year now, and we are two weeks into a four-week break during which we're looking at, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, the two church ordinances. Last week and today are for baptism, and then next week and the week after, God willing, are for the Lord's Supper. Our habit here is just to preach expositionally, which means we take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse. But then occasionally, as we feel necessary, maybe there's something in particular that this unique church, that this unique family we feel needs to study or look more closely at, we'll, we'll take little breaks. So that's kind of our custom. We're in one of those breaks right now in the middle of 1 Corinthians. I was, um, last week and this week, baptism, I was baptized in a freezing baptistry. It was freezing because the, the heater was broken, and I was baptized by my dad, who was an associate pastor and senior pastor, Stephen J. Willis, at First Christian Church in Irvine, California. I was 10 years old at the time, which in that church was a very old baptism candidate. I was old. I know that it was a very special day for my parents. Uh, I know it was a very special day for others. I know that it pleased my dad and it made him happy. And I loved probably more than just about anything else at that age. I loved to see my dad happy for lots of reasons. Uh, but for me, I barely remember my baptism. Um, I barely remember it, but I wish that I did. I wish I could remember it more clearly. And then as the years went by, my understanding of the gospel sort of filled out. Uh, my love for Jesus increased. Uh, and I looked back as my understanding of the gospel increased and my love for Christ increased. I did look back, me personally, with just a tiny bit of regret that I didn't wait to get baptized later. But there was no waiting. There was no waiting. My dad was a pastor. He was a pastor, and other kids much younger than I, they were getting baptized. And so it was the thing to do if you loved Jesus, and this was true also for adults. I can remember baptism services in our churches where uh, following the service, people were invited forward after a presentation of the gospel, and they were then baptized right there on the spot. So as best I can tell, you know, why am I telling you this? As best I can tell, my dad and the churches where he pastored then had quite a different understanding of baptism than I do today. A different understanding of baptism. I would even say, and I say this with 
as much respect as I could possibly say it, I could say that and would say that that view of baptism lacked a biblical foundation. I really believe it lacked a biblical foundation. And so what we've been doing these last two Sundays is opening God's word to ask questions about this ordinance of baptism and that because we want to be biblical. We want to be biblical in everything that we do. So last week we sort of poured the foundation by answering the questions, what is baptism and what does baptism signify? And now this morning we will build on that and consider the practical implications for a church. So as always, this is going to require God's help. So will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as always, we need your help. Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand this teaching on baptism. And help us, God, to work out how we as your people will faithfully obey you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 13. If you are using one of our church Bibles, you will find that text on page 847. I chose this text for the bulletin because its instruction is exactly what we need when approaching sensitive subjects about which there's been a lot of disagreement in the church historically, like this text that, and this doctrine that we're studying today. So let me read to you John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Baptism has been debated for the last 2,000 years throughout the history of the church. Its meaning has been debated. Its mode has been debated. Its proper subjects have been debated. All of that and more have been hotly argued over for centuries. And the differences have often led to splits among God's people, sometimes understandably and sometimes not. And so these verses in John, they remind us that one of the ways that as Christians we make it evident to the world around us that we are Christians is through how we love one another across disagreement. So it's so important for us to remember Christians can, and I would even say should, disagree. We're not always going to read the Scriptures faithfully and arrive at the same conclusions. That is just a reality. And the world does not know that we are Christians by all of us agreeing on every single thing, but on how we love one another across those disagreements. Now, there are things that we may not and cannot disagree over. And the closer you get to the gospel, the more important those things become. But when you start moving away from the gospel again, 
there are going to be things and doctrines and theologies and applications about which we are going to disagree. And we must, as Christians, love and respect one another. And as we do that is one of the things that makes it evident to the world that there's something different about us, that we have been changed from the inside out by Christ. So I know even in this church, I know that there has been disagreement and even discouragement over this issue of baptism. So let's keep John 13 in mind is what I'm asking. Let's keep John 13 in mind as we press forward. Last week, the sermon came in the form of asking and answering two questions, and this morning will be no different except three questions instead of two. But before moving forward, let me recap last week. I know some of you weren't here, and so just to give that to you in a nutshell, the two questions were, what is baptism? And what does baptism signify? And a summary of our biblical findings is, baptism is an ordinance whereby a believer is immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which displays their union with Christ the remission of their sins, as well as their personal commitment to Christ. I'm just going to read that one more time because it really is a summary of the entire sermon last week. Baptism is an ordinance whereby a believer is immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which displays their union with Christ, the remission of their sins, as well as their personal commitment to Christ. So now building on that understanding of baptism, this morning, three questions. How, who, and when? How should we baptize? Who should we baptize? And when should we baptize them? I'm not talking about like time of year here, but when should we baptize them in relation to their profession of faith and desire to be baptized? So again, keep in mind you were here. If not, you can listen to it this week if you like, but I just summarized it for you. Keep in mind sermon number one. This is actually two parts to one sermon. So today is a lot of application. It is a lot of practical implication built on our biblical understanding of what baptism is and what it signifies. So question number one today, how? How should we Baptized. That is a legitimate question because historically in the church there have been three modes. Effusion, aspersion, and immersion. Effusion is the pouring of water on someone being baptized. Aspersion is the sprinkling of water on someone being baptized. And immersion is the submersion of somebody into water being baptized. And those are three modes that have been practiced historically in the church. So we believe, I would say that on behalf of the elders and our members here, that immersion, most of our members, that immersion is the correct mode. And let me give you three quick reasons. First, the actual meaning of the Greek word that we get baptized from, baptizo, is plunge or immerse. Second, it looks to me that every instance of baptism in the New Testament takes place by immersion, including the baptism of Jesus, Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. 
because he was immersed. He didn't shake it off. He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And then third, since baptism represents our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, which mode depicts this most clearly? Sprinkling, pouring, or immersing? You could make a case for each. You really could. But I would say, as an historical Baptist would say, immersion. Immersion depicts most clearly our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This is chapter 29, paragraph 3 of our confession. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, in which the individual is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then paragraph 4, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary for this ordinance to be administered properly. So how should we baptize? By immersion in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is how we would answer. Second question, who who should be baptized? Historically, since the 17th century, there have been two answers amongst Protestant Christians to that question. Baptists would say believers and believers alone. We practice here believers baptism or credo baptism from the Latin word credo meaning belief. But others, including our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, would answer believers and their infant children. They practice paedo-baptism, from the Latin word paedo, meaning child. But as Baptists, we believe that believers and believers alone should be baptized. We talked about this last week. Remember Jesus' words at the end of the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It makes clear. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, that is, disciples, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If we take just a brief look at church history, we find that in the book of Acts, we have adults that are being baptized upon their conversion with no explicit mention of infants or even young children being baptized. We know that was still the case in the middle of the second century when we have record of Justin Martyr referring to the baptism of new believers that had committed to following Christ. But apparently by early third century, even late second century, churches were starting to baptize infants. Christian churches were. We have a treatise that was written by the early church father Tertullian called On Baptism, and in that he's questioning this practice of infant baptism, which apparently was going on. 
And by the 5th century, we know that it was widely practiced because of writers like Augustine. If you fast forward to the Reformation in the 1500s, and by the middle of that century, John Calvin articulated, many would say, the most biblically grounded argument for paedobaptism. And then finally, in the early 1600s, some Protestants in the Church of England felt that the Reformation had not quite gone far enough and that should have discarded completely, not just changed the argument for, the Roman Catholic practice of paedobaptism. They began to question it. And eventually, they condemned infant baptism and they were particular Baptists from which virtually all Baptists today find their heritage. They wrote the first edition of our confession in 1677, and they wrote these words in chapter 29, paragraph 2. Those who personally profess repentance toward God and faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So who? Who are the proper subjects of baptism? We would answer believers. Disciples are to be baptized. This is the clear command of Matthew chapter 28. It is also the clear example in the book of Acts. And as well, that is the assumption in the epistles of the New Testament. So that's how. That's who. And now this leads us to our third and final question, the one we'll spend the most time on this morning. When? When? Only a believer is to be baptized only a disciple is to be baptized, but when should a believer be baptized? Right away? Is that the right thing to do? That was the church culture I grew up in, and many would still believe that. As soon as you say you're a Christian, as soon as you profess faith in Christ to be baptized, should we wait a month? Two months? It would be great, wouldn't it, if there were verses that made this very clear? Thou shalt wait 63 days or something like that. We don't have that. Should it be after a season of evaluation? Should infants be baptized? If not infants, then what about children? If children at what age? Adolescents? Teenagers? So let's go back and remember what baptism is. There is no explicit instruction in the Bible on exactly when it is prudent to baptize a believer. There's some examples, but there's no clear instruction. So we should base our answer on this biblical doctrine of baptism. Understand what baptism is and then go from there. So in other words, when a believer is baptized, what's happening? What is happening when a believer is baptized? What are they doing through baptism? And what is the church doing through baptism? Remember, baptism isn't something you do to yourself. 
It's administered. It is done in fellowship with other Christians. So once we understand biblically what a believer is doing and what the church is doing, we can answer the question, when? So let me read you another definition of baptism. This is by Bobby, Pastor Bobby Jamieson because he summarizes well the, the meaning of baptism that we've looked at and the role of everyone involved. He writes, Baptism is a church's act. If you've been present at a baptism, I don't know if you've ever considered that you have a role there. You are part of that baptism. It's why it's not done privately. It's why it's, you can't baptize yourself. It is something that a church does. It is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. And it is a believer's act. That's what the church is doing. And here's what the believer is doing. It is a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him or her off from the world. So when someone is baptized, that's not just someone saying, I'm a Christian. It's not just the pastor saying this person is a Christian. It's not just this guy or these people over here. It is we as the church. We as the church on behalf of Jesus, right? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Based on the authority that Jesus passed on to his church in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28, he's given the keys to the church. The door in and out of the church. We as the church on behalf of Jesus. And according to the criteria that he has given us, we solemnly affirm this person to be a Christian. That is a very big deal. It is a very big deal for God's people to affirm someone as a Christian and to portray that before the world. To baptize someone is to affirm their union with Christ. So, are they truly a Christian? Is the question. We can't see the heart. We don't know, and so we get this right and we get this wrong. But just because we can't see the heart is no excuse for us to be irresponsible or rash. Is this person truly a Christian? Nominal Christianity is rampant in our day and age. So many calling themselves Christians who have no idea what the gospel is have no idea what it means to be a Christian or no idea what it means to live the Christian life. People who are a Christian in tradition only or name only or because my mom and dad were or because I was baptized when I was a child and yet no understanding of what it means to follow Christ. It's rampant in our age. Misunderstandings of the gospel are rampant in our day and age. And so... We have, we would say, a responsibility to be thoughtful with this. A responsibility to be careful with this. Samuel Waldron writes, What does baptism say to and about the one being baptized? It says that he or she is in union with Christ. Christ. 
is forgiven and has a cleansed heart. Thus, when one is baptized, it is proclaimed to them and about them that they are in union with Christ, forgiven and have pure hearts. So we must be diligent in discerning whether or not a person is truly a Christian. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Therefore, it is our responsibility to first look for evidence of that inward reality. Does this individual have a publicly credible faith? And so we would say that the church does a tremendous disservice to an unbeliever if they confirm their faith through baptism rashly. And so therefore, it is this church's practice, and those of you who are members know this, those of you who have been baptized here, you know this, it has been our practice to take some time to witness belief before baptizing. Believers should be baptized as soon as the congregation is willing and able to, based on a reasonable and collective confidence in their conversion. Let me say this. This could easily, right? There's always dangers. There's always the danger. And Christians are bad at taking things too far, or not far enough. It's always this balance, right? And there's the cliffs on this side when you're in the stream. You could bang into it. And then there's the cliffs on this side. You could fall off here or fall off there. So we need to be careful. This could easily turn into rigorism where we as a church deny baptism to genuine believers which is just as bad as baptizing unbelievers. We're looking for the fruit of faith, not the fruit of mature faith. Do they understand the gospel? They understand sin and atonement and faith and what it means to follow Jesus. Have they made a profession of faith? Do they desire baptism? Is there evidence of conversion? Is there evidence of conviction worked by the Holy Spirit? Is there evidence of revelation? Is there evidence of regeneration? According to Jonathan Edwards, here are, and he gives five of them, distinguishing marks of a true conversion. This is looking for faith again. Not some higher standard. Faith in Christ. Hearing and believing the gospel and placing your faith in Christ. Here's what that looks like. Number one, a heightened esteem for Jesus. Do you? Does this person, do they love Jesus? Two, is there a growing distaste for sin? Do you? Does this person hate sin? Not, do they not sin? 
We'd never have a baptism candidate. But do they hate sin? Not do they hate sin as much as you, Christian, who's been walking with Jesus for 20 years, but is there a distaste for sin and is it increasing? Number three, an increasing sense of certainty in the truth of Scripture. Do you? Does this person believe this is God's word? Four, an increased tendency to recognize and cherish truth that is true that is not true. To love truth, to want to know more truth. And then finally, number five, a spirit of growing love to God and man. This is what it looks like when someone is regenerated. This is what it looked like when you became a Christian. You loved Jesus, and it was evident. You hated sin, and it was evident. You loved God's Word, and it was evident. You loved to worship God, and it was evident. You had a new and growing love for other Christians, and it was evident. You had a love for those and a concern for those who were not Christians, and it was evident. And that is there not when your faith is mature only, but it is there when you place your faith in Christ. And so is there evidence in this person that wants to be baptized? It is good and wise for us to consider. So that is our practice here at this church. Whenever we've had a baptism candidate, if they were new to the church, we've encouraged them to stay for a while, to get to know them, for them to get to know us. Not to look at their life under a microscope, but to simply look for fruit of faith and fruit of repentance. And then moving forward to ask you as those who are members here is the congregation and saying, what do you see? The reason we ask you that is because we collectively, when we baptize someone, we affirm to them and about them that they are united to Christ in his burial, death, and resurrection. That is a serious thing to do. And as pastors, we don't just tell you what you have to do, but as a church and as a congregation, we make that decision. And so that's our practice with adults. Oh, what about children? Well, this is a far more sensitive issue. Sean D. Wright, he writes, this may be one of the most difficult issues emotionally and pastorally for churches to face. He's talking about working out our understanding of baptism and then how it applies to an actual practice in church of when children are to be baptized. Local churches need to exercise biblical wisdom as they seek to arrive at policies regarding the age at which they will baptize children professing faith. There's no clear, explicit instruction in Scripture. And so local churches have to work this out. They have to go to God's Word. Understand baptism as best they can. And administer baptism as best they can in an effort to be faithful to God and true to His Word. It could be difficult to discern. Charles Spurgeon, he was not baptized until he was 15. 
and he waited until his twin sons were 18. But then he's also quoted as saying, of the many boys and girls whom we have received into church fellowship, I can say of them all, they have gladdened my heart, and I have never received any with greater confidence than I have these. I'm not certain that he was talking about baptism, but it sounds like he was. And yet he was not baptized until he was 15, and his own two children he didn't baptize until they were 18. So back to Baptist history, there are two main views on this. And we've all been raised up, if we've been raised up in Baptist churches, in one of these. And there's a wide range of practices beneath each one. So view number one, the withholding view. Doesn't that sound terrible? It sounds bad. The withholding view. Because you don't, does anybody want to, with, I don't want to withhold anything good from anyone, let alone your children. But let's think about this view. The withholding view. Baptism and communion should be withheld from children until they reach a level of maturity that is independent of their parents in matters relating to God and the church. Children in these churches are and have been rarely baptized before the age of 18. And that was practically exclusive until this last century. And view number two is the immediate view. The immediate view. This view advocates for immediate participation in baptism and communion for believing children who are then recognized as church members with limited responsibilities. And children in these churches are often baptized as young as two or three years old, which is typically when children of Christian parents will start professing that they love Jesus. There are, of course, dangers with each of these views. For those who lean toward withholding, right, the danger is that a genuine believing child is discouraged or that parents would lower their expectations and then not disciple their kids rightly. But on the other hand, for those who lean toward immediate participation, the danger is that baptism is given rashly and non-believers are baptized leading to false assurances and more nominal Christianity. For those of you that grew up in churches that were quick to baptize, you can think of dozens, I'm sure, dozens of friends who were baptized and affirmed as Christians who only revealed 10, 15 years later they didn't know Jesus. They didn't love Jesus. And maybe you've known some, I have, who have clung to a baptism as assurance that in the end they will be saved. That's a danger. We must use wisdom. One danger is the discouraging of a born-again believer, and the other is helping along the deception of false believers. And we as parents and as a church, of course, we want to avoid both. We have to balance ourselves between rigorism on the one side, which potentially discourages true believers, and then immediatism on the other side, which potentially encourages non-believers. So how do we navigate this? How do we do this as a church? 
But we know that children can be saved. There's no doubt about that. There's examples in Scripture. There's personal examples here today. We know that God doesn't wait for some level of maturity or some age, and then that's when he starts regenerating people. Obviously, children can be saved. There's no doubt about that. For those of you who, I'm, who I know, most, if not all, of your children are professing believers. I don't know of a single five-year-old atheist among us who's living a debaucherous life. It doesn't exist. They are professing believers. They are like those in Matthew 18, 6 that Jesus calls these little ones who believe in me. They don't believe in him as much as you believe in him maybe or as maturely as you do, but they believe. You should disciple your little ones who believe in him. And when they understand baptism and when they are ready to go public with their faith, and when the evidence of their conversion has become naturally evident to the congregation so that they can confidently affirm them as born-again believers, then baptism must and should be pursued. But here's a reality. I think this is a reality. Distinguishing real fruit of faith is difficult in a young child. It's just a reality. It's difficult to discern faith in a young child. No one questions whether a child can be saved. God can save at any age. The question, remember our understanding of baptism. The question is whether or not a church, not just parents, because it's not just parents baptizing a child, it's the church. So the question is whether or not a church has the ability or competence to affirm a child's profession of faith? Is it reasonable to ask them to affirm this child's faith? Is it evident, publicly evident, that they're believers? I think that's wisdom. So here's where I'm at as a dad. By God's grace, all of my unbaptized children ranging from 15 all the way down to 5 are professing believers. Each one of them professes that they believe the gospel and so in our home we treat them like professing believers. But are they all ready to publicly profess that faith before you, their church, through baptism? No, they're not. And are you all able to confidently affirm their faith through baptism as a dad? I don't think you are. When they're ready and when you're able, they'll be baptized. Okay, let's get very practical now as I wrap up this sermon. I want to give some closing principles, which include baptism, that I can encourage you parents with, and this because we have so many parents of young children. 
This is just where we are as a church. Like, there are almost as many people on the other side of that wall as there are on this side of the wall. Like if mutiny could happen one Sunday. So I know this is a very specific application, and, and for, for many of you who've raised kids or don't have kids, it doesn't apply to you. I understand that. Um, but I hope you would encourage us parents in this way. And again, because we have so many children, uh, I thought it would be appropriate. Because in churches where I was raised, it was just as soon as a child says they believe, and as soon as a child says that they love Jesus, you would baptize them. And it was very straightforward, and we didn't really ask any questions, and that was a part of how we discipled our kids. So when you're in a church that isn't at least quick to do that, I want to talk about how we discipline and disciple, not discipline, how we disciple our children. How do we as parents, here are some practical ways that we encourage them in their faith. Because again, most if not all of them are professing believers. So if it's not this, we got to talk about baptism and we got to move towards baptism. And if that's not the consuming direction, well then what is? And let me say this, that we as a church, starting with us as elders, and I know they would agree, we need to continue to refine and promote this practice of discipling our kids toward baptism. We do need to refine that, and we do need to make some things more clear and helpful for all of us, I believe. And if you have any questions about any of this, please ask me. Please ask any one of our pastors as we're thinking through this. So here are some principles for parents to navigate by. And I'm going to give five, five principles. And again, in this context of talking about baptism... And the baptism of our children, we're just going out a bit wider now and talking about general discipleship of our kids. So number one, understand for yourself the meaning of baptism and take it seriously. Maybe you agree with what you heard here last week and this morning. Maybe you don't. That's okay. But make sure that you understand baptism. So examine your presuppositions. We all have them. Examine the way that you were raised. Examine what you've been taught before and see if it accords with Scripture. But understand for yourself the meaning of baptism and take it seriously. And remember that baptism is not necessary for salvation. We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. We do not believe that baptism is necessary in order for someone to be saved. So keep that in mind. And don't rush your children into this ordinance. I don't know of any of you who are doing that. Number two, accept your children's profession of faith and train them according to what they say they believe and who they say they are. And I know that many would disagree with me on this point. I know that many Reformed Baptists would, would disagree with me on this point and be much more careful and not in any way affirm someone's profession of faith before they reach a certain degree of maturity. But I would encourage you to accept your children's profession of faith. 
If they say they believe the gospel, accept that. If they say they love Jesus, accept that. Do not be critical of them. And when you see them sin a lot, don't say to yourself, how could they be a Christian and do that? Or just go say that into a mirror. Right? <laughs> they could do that in the same way that you do that. I mean, how can you be a Christian and say the things that you say? How can you be a Christian and think the things that you think? How can you be a Christian and do the things that you do? So accept your child's profession of faith and train them according to what they say they believe and who they say that they are. Number three, teach your child the Word of God and especially the Gospel. I know we've made that in some ways necessary by not having a, a, a large and expanding children's ministry or youth ministry. I think there's more things that we could do to, uh, to encourage and to teach our young people here. And I hope in time we do do more of those things. But right now there's not much of that. And so you parents understand that this falls on you. But even if there were, you must understand that it is your responsibility, parents, to teach your children the word of God. And it is your responsibility to disciple your children. And it is your responsibility, most importantly and especially, to teach your kids the gospel. You are your teenager's youth pastor. You are your child's children's ministry director. You are the primary evangelist in your children's life. And you must be the primary source of God's truth. Don't teach your child what steps they must take in order to be saved as much as you teach them the gospel and encourage them in faith and repentance. Number four, and this is four is so hard. Four is so hard. Model the Christian life. Oh God, that we would have less of a disconnect between what Christian parents say and what they do. Model the Christian life. Tell your kids about Jesus, yes. Open up the word with your kids, yes. Model it. Teach them how it's done. Show them how to live. Show them how to live and Good times and bad times, when things are easy and when things are hard, when you feel blessed and when you feel cursed, when you're healthy and when you're sick. And bring your children into your Christian life. Pray formally with your kids and spontaneously with your kids. Express gratitude to God openly. How many times have I been with my kids and I'm thankful to God for something and it's in here and I'm not letting it out? You feel gratitude towards God, you're with your kids. Express that gratitude to God openly. Cry out to God openly. 
Cry out to God openly. Just pray spontaneously with your kids. Dad really needs God's help right now. I've had to say things like this. I'm angry right now. I want to lose my temper with you right now. I feel like I'm going to sin against you right now. I need God's help. So right now, I need you to go to your room, and I'm going to go to my room, and I need to pray. Cry out to God openly. Bring up answers to prayer. You see God answering prayer? Make sure your children know how God is answering prayer. Read the Word every day or read the Word regularly. Don't just read or quote the Bible when your kids are in trouble. The Bible is more than a rule book. Pursue holiness openly. Let your kids see you saying no to ungodliness. Let them see and understand and know why you won't listen to this or why you won't watch that or why you won't buy this or why you won't go there. Whatever it is, pursue holiness openly. So important. Confess your sin to your kids and ask them to forgive you. Not every sin, but when you sin against your children, confess your sin. Be quick to do that. They already know you sinned. It's not like if you confess this, they're going to know that you messed up. It's clear to them. They may have even known it before you do. So confess your sin and ask them to forgive you. That should never be beneath you. You will sin against your children. And in order for you to have an ongoing, intimate relationship with them, they're going to need to forgive you and let go of how you've offended them. And so you need to express sorrow to them over what you've done and ask them to let it go. Sometimes you'll sin in front of your kids and you'll gossip or you'll complain or you'll lose your temper and it may not be against them, but they saw it. You should confess it. You should confess it. Boldly speak up and stand up for what's right in front of your kids. Love and serve others with your children. Help them interpret events through the lens of a Christian worldview. These are some of the most interesting conversations in our house. This happened, or this is happening, or oh my goodness, this or that. And you talk, well, what does the Bible have to say about this? How should we feel about this? What should we do here? Have these kinds of conversations. Let them see you. Looking to Christ. Let them see you depending on Christ. So, number four, model the Christian life. And number five, and most importantly, as you disciple your children, and even as you disciple them toward baptism, this is the most important thing. It is the most important thing that you do for your children. If you do anything for your children, do this. What is it? pray. Pray. Parents, who do you want saved more than anyone else on earth? 
your kids. You can encourage that. You can seek to cultivate a heart for God. You can model the Christian life. You can teach them the word. You can preach to them the gospel. And you should. But you can't change their heart. So you must depend on God. And you must cry out to God. Beg Him for the souls of your kids. Beg Him every day, every night. Be diligent in your responsibility, but know and trust that God alone is able. Now, how encouraging is that to those of you who have kids, maybe even grown kids, who are not walking with Jesus today, and you're looking and saying, I've done everything that I could do. I, I did that, or I didn't do that, and I've confessed it, and I've asked forgiveness, and now I feel like it's too late, and I don't know what I can do now. I can't get those years back, or I poured into them, and they're still away from Jesus. They're nowhere near Him today. Well, the good news is, right, there was never anything that you could do to ensure the salvation of your kids. But in a second... In a second, if and when God decides he can take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and they will love Jesus. And so you pray, and you pray, and you pray. Pray that God would open their mind to understand the gospel and their heart to willingly receive the gospel. Pray that God would ignite their hearts for him. Pray that he would reveal himself to them. So they would love him and love his word and love his worship and love his people. Pray and taste that they would, like you have, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just that mom and dad say he's good, but that they would know at the bottom of who they are that he is good. And there would be love. In short, disciple your kids. And as your kids are or become disciples of Jesus Christ when they are ready to publicly profess that faith and when you believe that the church is able and equipped with what they need to affirm their salvation then present them to the elders of this church for baptism so that we can come alongside you as parents and help make this church family decision together. Ultimately, this is so important because baptism, it pictures the gospel. It puts the gospel on display. If you are here this morning and you have not put your trust in Christ, why not trust Him today? Why not put your faith in Christ today? Believe. It is true. Jesus came and he lived. And he suffered and he died and he rose from the dead in your place. So that you could believe in him and trust in him. Have your sins forgiven and washed clean. And be reconciled to God through His Son, Jesus, who loves you.
believe and turn to him. Take hold of Jesus. And trust him. As a leader and as leaders, if you are trusting Christ for the first time today or recently, we would love to talk to you. I know other people here would love to talk to you too. But we would love to talk to you. Would you come and talk to us? Let us know who you are, young or old. In just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which God willing will look even more closely at next week and the week following, which I'm so excited about. But every Sunday following every sermon, we respond as a church family. Those of us who have been baptized, we respond by taking communion together. We've come through that front door of baptism, and now we gather around the table together. It's a family meal. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. You're invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer. You have placed your faith in Christ and committed yourself to him and to his people. And if you are a part of his body, a church, whether it's this or another one that preaches the same gospel you've heard here today, then you're invited to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up the front to serve you. If you'd come forward to the center aisle and then take the bread and the juice, return to your seat and wait, and then we'll take those emblems together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, today and, and now this morning, we remember the sacrifice that enabled us to come to you. And we give you thanks. And our hearts are filled with gratitude. We pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified in this time. That we would remember deeply the gospel. And that we would receive, even now, your grace. Poured out on us as we commune with you and we commune with one another in this most special way again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.